0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. You can turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. We are getting into the story of Samson, as Tyler mentioned earlier, although we're really not going to get very far into the story today, uh, so don't worry, you stole the thunder from like a couple weeks out, um, so thanks for that. But I know how people's memory is, I know everyone's going to forget all about it, and, and it'll be like fresh, I've never heard that before, God's spirit left Samson, I can't believe it. Um. You probably don't remember, but we did Judges chapter 12 back before this last summer, uh, back in the late spring of 2021, and that chapter ended detailing this genocide of 42,000 Ephraimites at the hands of their Gileadite brothers. Uh, Gilead was a a clan that originated from the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim were the two children of Joseph, who was a son of Jacob, and so uh, this, is, this is family violence, family on family violence, um, and, uh, and that was sort of the last big story that we had. Chapter 12 ends with uh, uh, some mentioning of various judges who came and ruled over Israel, and if you remember, the big point in the end of chapter 12 was, um, was that God is increasingly less present and active in the narrative, he's not presented as, as a big part of what's going on. Um, and as we move closer and closer to the end of the book, you'll notice that the, this mention of God's presence or this mention of God as like an agent of change in the story. It just steadily decreases. You know, so much of, of the condition of God's people in this story is betrayed by what isn't in the text, when God isn't appearing and painted as present and active in the story, we're getting a picture of people who have wandered quite far from God. You know, as people of faith, we we firmly believe that God is always present and that he's always active, that he's always working behind the scenes. We believe there's no place you could go that would be apart from his presence. And yet at the same time, we live through seasons or We live in a society where the reality of his presence oftentimes seems like this distant thing. It's like a footnote in the story rather than the center of it. And that's what we see in the the narrative of the judges. Increasingly, God is becoming like a footnote, an afterthought in the text, rather than the one who's there in the middle of it making it all happen. And we experience life so differently when our perspective on God, of whether he's present or far, is is different if if we see him as near and a part of everything, we experience life differently than if we see him far and away. A friend shared a story with me this week about uh, one of their kids who had lost a school library book, and uh, and so when you lose a school library book, there is usually a, a, a nominal fine that comes with that for replacing the book. Uh, I know, we've had children lose library books before. We know about this at the Dieter house. I know, gasp, can you believe it? Um, anyhow, their, their son was uh, feeling pretty anxious about having to tell the librarian that they'd lost this book. And, and so they'd had, they'd had him write a letter to the librarian saying, Hey, I lost the book, what do I need to do to make this right? And, and the kid was feeling anxiety about having to you know, give this letter to the librarian And some of you, I probably mentioned like elementary school librarian, and you might feel some anxiety because you know how terrifying some of those librarians can be, especially if you know you've lost one of their books. Um, Anyhow, the part of the story that was meaningful to me is that the the, the kid has walked through praying and, and, and proclamations are made into this child's life that God is near and that he walks with us through difficult things. And yeah, this is difficult and it's understandable that, you're maybe feeling anxious over it, but God is with you to give you courage to help you you know deliver this letter to the librarian and and go and and the the parents shared they they got to the drop-off line at the school and and who's out there greeting the kids for drop-off but the librarian and this is not a part of the normal drop-off routine the librarian's usually not out there probably someone called in sick that day and and you know she drew the short straw I don't know but there she is. And so this parent saying to the kid, look, it, she's right there. Like, they take a moment to pray again, and, and isn't it great? She's right there. You don't have to go and wander into the school, into the library all by yourself. Like, she's right there. And the kid delivers the letter, and the parent gets to see the kid be greeted with a great big hug from the librarian. and And this whole thing of, look what God has done in this family. And so... I, I think of like this kid, I, I think of my own children, I think of the kids who are growing up here in the community at Renewal, and that's something that we believe is important for them to understand. God is in the center of the small things, like the you know the overdue library book or the lost library book, and he's in the center of the big things, the losses of life, the, the tragedies that befall us. God's in the center of it all. I really believe the author. Of the, of the book of Judges uh, is intentionally reducing the appearance of God in the text. He's re- t- intentionally reducing the centrality of, of God's presence to the narrative. It isn't a mistake that God isn't being woven into the details of everything. You know, at the beginning of Judges, we see a clear pattern where God's people, are, are uh, they fall away from him, they fall into trouble, and then God's people are crying out to the Lord. And then, and then this language is used of the Lord raising up judge after judge. He raises them up. And that's a clear pattern that happens over and over again. But as we continue to move on, it, it kind of comes, and now this person's leading rather than God is raising them up. And so probably it's safe to say on the one hand that God is still the agent behind the things that are happening. But the people are no longer seeing him in that place. He's no longer being acknowledged for who he is or what he is doing. It's still God's people, but God isn't in the center of their lives anymore. And I think for us, you know, living today, we have to, we have to be mindful of this. I mean, I'm still God's person, whether I acknowledge him the center of my week or not. I'm still his son. I'm still beloved by him, still saved, if you will. But my life is lived very differently when I see the Lord as present and the center of my week versus when I see him as far away. Our families live and relate differently if we see God in the middle of it all or as somehow disengaged or distant. Um, So this is the setting for the next story. God's people have wandered away from him. There's there's been this horrible, you know, murder of God's people by God's people. And in Judges chapter 13, we begin the story of one of Israel's most famous, famous and well-known judges, certainly the strongest judge, Samson. And Samson's story begins with a, a description of a setting where, hey, again, Israel's doing evil in the sight of the Lord's, and these Israelites who are doing evil in the sight of the Lord find themselves under the thumb of the Philistines for 40 years. So for 40 years, they're oppressed uh, by this other people group who have come in and taken over um, and I, I just can't imagine what that would be like to be oppressed by another nation. I mean, I used, to, I used to love to talk about the Canadians invading and just we're under the Canadians' thumb. You know, how horrible would that be? Um, I'm sure they would hold us politely under their thumb. They wouldn't be mean about it. But Anyhow, Judges 13, verse 2, we read, There was a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites, he had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, "You are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to the son, to a son, sorry." So, we've got Israelites are, are under the thumb of the Philistines, and then there's this, you know, random man from this clan, Manoah, and then he's got a wife who can't have children, and then the angel of the Lord shows up interrupts the story, interrupts the setting, and says, hey, you are childless. She's like, thank you, Captain Obvious. And then he says, but you're going to be pregnant, and you're going to give birth to a son. He says to her, now see to it that you drink no wine or fermented drink, which is great advice for a pregnant woman, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant. You're going to have a son whose head has never been touched by a razor, Because the boy is to be a Nazarite. He's to be dedicated to God from the womb. And he's going to take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So the angel doesn't just say you're going to have a son. The angel gives some specific instructions. This child is to be a Nazarite. A little bit of context. What is a Nazarite? Well, you, you know, you turn your Bibles back to... Back to... Numbers chapter 6. You turn it back to Numbers chapter 6. All right, it's it's not fair. I have the notes in front of me. I have one friend, he's a pastor in town. He's Scott Allen, maybe some of you know him. And he always knows where those verses are. In fact, he'll never talk about the Bible without saying something like it's there in Numbers chapter 6. He'll always give the address and and uh, he's like a Bible wizard. Um, anyhow, Numbers chapter 6. Moses is leading Israel and God is speaking to Moses, giving him the law, laying out how things are gonna work. And God says to him that if somebody wants to be set apart for me, if somebody wants to set themselves apart to dedicate themselves to me for a period of time, they're going to take this Nazarite vow. They're not gonna drink any any wine. Actually, they're not gonna drink or eat anything that comes from the grapevine. So they can't eat fresh grapes, they can't eat raisins. They can't eat grape juice, they can't drink wine, They none of it, right? And then they also aren't supposed to cut their hair at all. They don't let a razor ever touch their head. And uh, and then lastly, they don't defile themselves by touching any corpses. Um, I, I've actually managed to live my whole life up to this point. This might be hard to believe. I've managed to live 39 years without ever touching a corpse, so... Oh, wait, you know what? That's not true. I've been in hospice, and yeah, never mind. Okay, never mind. Um, shoot. Anyhow, I've cut my hair. Uh, I've, I've I've broken all the rules around grapes. Oh, man. Um, anyhow, so, and I don't, they don't know exactly what the context of this would have been, but the idea was, you know, you had God's people, and you had, the priests who were set apart just because of the families that they're born into. And you had all the others, God's people. It's almost like God was creating a space for the other people. Hey, if you want to be dedicated to God, you can, you can jump into this thing too. This is how you, you do it. You take the vow of a Nazarite. And, and they were kind of known in Israelite circles as, as you know, these kind of religiously uh, really serious kind of prophetic uh, type characters. Anyhow, the angel of the Lord here uh, is saying, I want you to set this child apart as a Nazarite from the womb. So this would have been even a little different. It's not like the child saying, hey, I want to be set apart to God. God is setting this person apart from the womb. His whole life is to be marked by this sacred devotion and and commitment to God and, and this idea of being set apart for holy service. So the woman has this encounter with the angel, and she goes to tell her husband, hey, I saw this man in a field. He, he looked like an, an angel of God. And, and then he said to me that I'm going to have a baby. And in verse 8, it says, Manoah prayed to the Lord, and he says, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God that you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Now, I would imagine that his wife gave him all of those details, but it would seem that her testimony wasn't quite good enough for him. He needed to hear it for himself. Uh, You know, I don't know, this woman's carried away. She said she saw this stuff in the field. She gave us these details, and I'm not so sure about this. So he prays to God and says, God, send that man of God again. So verse 9 says that God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. I don't, I'm not going to get into this too much today, but it's interesting to me that God keeps showing up for this woman when her husband isn't there to see it. And and then it's interesting to me that like you can read this like he doesn't quite believe her. And anyhow, I love that God's inflating her role and even her authority in the story to, to testify to him. Um. It's almost like this thing where it's the women who saw Jesus raised from the dead. It's like God really cares about these voices that have been marginalized in our society, and he wants to lend credence to them and, and have people listen up. Anyhow, um, the angel shows up, and, and her husband's not with her. And so the, the woman hurries to go and tell her husband, Hey, the man's out in the field. He's here. The man appeared to me uh, the other day. He's out there in the field. And so Manoah gets up, and he follows his wife to where he comes to the man, and then he... And then he says to him, are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, said the angel. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but a question begins to come up really quickly because the text is saying it's the angel of the Lord. Then the man and the woman keep referring to it as a man. And so there's this idea that is this, is this a, an angel? Is this a messenger from God? Is this a flesh and blood holy man? Maybe he's a Nazarite. Himself, And there seems to be confusion on part of the participating members of the story as to what is going on. I think that these lines are being somewhat left intentionally blurry. You know, it's possible, for one reason, left blurry to point out that it is possible to be in the presence of God and to not quite realize it. I think in the same way that it's possible for God's presence to leave and not quite realize it. The main point being that there are things going on and there are in the spiritual realm and there are spiritual realities that we can live our lives ignorant of, like God being present and center in the story. Anyhow, verse 12, Manoah asks him, he says, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? We won't read it, but the angel gives the rules for the Nazarites again. Same thing he told the woman, validating her testimony. Then in verse 15, Manoah says to the angel again, he says, Well, we would like you to stay until we can prepare a goat for you. This is a, a little bit of hospitality protocol. Hey, a visitor comes, you welcome them in, you feed them. This is, this is a big part of, of life in the ancient Near East. a big part of life and in many cultures around the world, uh, even now. Um, Anyhow, the angel of the Lord replies, uh, even though I will stay with you, I'm not going to eat any of your food. But I want you to prepare a burnt offering, and I want you to offer it to the Lord. The author inserts in here a statement saying, Manoah did not realize that this man he's talking to was the angel of the Lord. He continues, though, and he says to him, he asks the angel of the Lord, he says, what's your name? So that, when, so that we may honor you when your word comes true. You know, he's just found out he's about to have a kid. Names are pretty important. He thinks to himself, I, I imagine he thinks to himself, hey, I'm going to name him after this holy man who showed up and prophesied about this kid's birth. That'd be a neat way to honor this kid. Yeah, he's named after the guy that prophesied. He's a special kid. Um, I, You know, be like naming your kid Abraham Lincoln or something. Um, anyhow, the man says to him, why do you ask my name? It's beyond your understanding. Other translations will say, it's too wonderful for you. This whole, and we realize, you know, as we get to look in on this story, we know the whole entire story. The entire interaction is too wonderful for Manoah to comprehend. He still thinks he's talking to just a, you know, probably a wandering prophet in the desert who's, uh, you know, just another guy. Um, he's, in fact, talking face-to-face with God. He's about to realize that. Manoah takes a goat. He, he gathers it with a grain offering. They, they set it ablaze. And, um, and then it says, The Lord did something amazing. Well, Manoah and his wife watched. As the flames blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. And seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell to their faces to the ground. And then, when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again, Manoah, to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. This phrase is important, especially in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord signifies something different than an angel of the Lord. We have the definitive article in there. The, this is not just an angel, this is the angel. And, um, the. <laughs> This brings up something funny. So uh, my friend Dave Hendrickson was invited a couple years ago to come and be the new pastor at Longview Community Church. And he was going through their articles of incorporation and, and all of that, all the bylaws and stuff and found out that their official name is The Longview Community Church. The, so the definitive article is in there. So this isn't just a church in town. This is the church in town. And actually when it was first built, it, it was the church in town. Anyhow, this isn't just another any angel. This is the angel of the Lord. And upon realizing that, Manoah says, we are doomed to die. He says to his wife, we have seen God and we are going to die. And this is a response we see a lot in the Old Testament when people realize that they've seen God. And someone reading it might think, well, wait a minute. They've seen an angel. They haven't seen God. Is this an angel or is this the Lord? What is going on? I'm confused. Is this a man or is this an angel? Is this an angel or is this the Lord? I think the confusion comes because many of us might not be aware of the ancient Israelite concept of of Yahweh. Yahweh's oneness being in many ways paradoxically tied and, and bound to this broader ancient religious view of of two powers that rule over the divine world. Uh, as we know, the, the Israelite religion and the revelation that God brought to Abraham came in the context of his culture and the religions around him. And God often uses familiar things to communicate to us eternal truths about himself. And, and, and in the broader ancient Near East, there was this concept that there were two powers that ruled over, over all of creation. There was a high god El who ruled over all of the other gods, but he mediated his rule through an appointed second god, Baal. And this idea that a sovereign ruler would mediate his rule over all of the cosmos and the, you know, the the ancient Near East conceptualization is that there are many gods and that and that there's all kinds of people, so this sovereign ruler who would have a vice regent who would rule and both of them are supreme and they're two different, you know, two different gods that are sort of ruling together. What's unique about the Israelite take on this and the revelation that God gave to Abraham was that Yahweh is both the high sovereign God who rules and the one who mediates that rule to all of his creation. Yahweh is both the sovereign and the vice regent. Yahweh is the invisible high God who rules over the divine council of, of all the lesser Elohim in creation. And Yahweh is also the angel of the Lord. He's the one who meets his people. He's the one who shows up. Oftentimes in scripture, in human form. Sometimes in other forms. But he shows up in, in, in human form and interacts with his creation. Genesis 18, he's one of the men that Abraham sees showing up and talking. He's the one who Jacob wrestles with when Jacob wrestles with God later on in the book of Genesis. He's the one who Moses is talking to face to face. He's the angel of the Lord who shows up and talks to Gideon. That was earlier in the book of Judges. He's, he's the one who, in Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel sees a vision of heaven and he sees a man sitting on the throne. That is Yahweh. He's both the invisible spirit form and he's comes and revealed in the form of a man. The one who speaks at the beginning of creation, speaks it all into existence, sees it all, and yet also the one who comes after man falls and is walking through the garden searching for man, the man and his wife, for Adam and Eve. And both are Yahweh. And and to see One is to have seen the other. To have interacted with one is to have interacted with the other. And we can see how this concept of God, you know, showing up in multiple persons, as it were, we can see how that's necessary to the concept of God being love. For him to be a God of love and yet to also be complete in himself we need a god who's revealed in more than one person's love is a relational concept you can't love without someone to love and so we need this to understand our mystery of a relational god love can't exist apart from relationship we can also see how this concept that was rooted in ancient israelite religion we can see how this concept of these two powers was foundational for early Christians in being able to understand, well, who is Jesus? The early church was all from a Jewish background, and how can they worship this Jesus who they've seen in the flesh and yet still claim to be monotheists, still claim to worship the one true God of Scripture? Well, it's because their framework, their religious understanding of the Old Testament had built into it this idea that there are Two powers. There is a God who is spirit, and there is a God who shows up as a man. The word who from the beginning was with God is also God. Early Christians had this framework of the ancient Jewish religion that helped them to understand what it was that was happening before them. So that at the end of all things, we could worship and praise Jesus, and at the same time, hold fast to the ancient truth that the Lord is one. We can worship the incarnate Jesus without somehow becoming you know, polytheistic in our religion. In Christ, they see the fullness of the deity dwelling, while at the same time, they're able to pray to their Father in heaven. Interestingly, it wasn't until the second century after Christ that, uh, that you'll see in the rabbinical writings and the, and the Israelite you know, theology, you'll begin to see... A real moving away of this idea that Yahweh could be presented in more than one person. And it's because of the influence of the early church where Christians are suddenly making this claim and pointing back to scripture and pointing back to even like Second Temple literature and things and saying, look, there's two gods in the Yahweh is revealed in the two powers. There's this this idea is built in here. We are we are not polytheistic, we're not falling away from anything, we're seeing the fulfillment. Of God's revelation here in this man Jesus Christ. If you're interested in the subject. I would highly recommend Dr. Michael Heiser's book. Called The Unseen Realm. And read that and then read all the footnotes. And you'll feel like a real expert on these things. But anyhow. Upon realizing that he's seen God face to face. Manoah is convinced of one thing. And that's that he is doomed. But his wife thinks about this differently. Once again, his wife is the one with a little more insight. She answers him and she says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and the grain offering from our hands. He wouldn't have shown us all these things and he certainly wouldn't have told us these things that he told us. Now, when she says it like that, it feels like a little bit of a (laughs) no-brainer, but I think there's something important for us to realize here. You know, you've got this This guy, Manoah, who's probably, like many men, thinking heavily on the the rational side of things. And he's like, this is what we know about God. He is holy, he is other, he he is righteous, and evil cannot live in his presence. And so if he shows up, all hope is lost. And that's where he goes in his brain right away. His wife, arguably the more relationally minded partner, Uh, encounters this man and sees something different. She's cluing into both the verbal and the nonverbal communication that's just happened, and she's saying, yes, yes, we realize we've seen God now. At the same time, even though, yes, the stories kind of teach us, and the traditions teach us that those who see God are going to perish, at the same time, man, he didn't seem very threatening. I mean, here he was in the form of a man looking very much like us. And even when that amazing thing happened and he ascended into heaven, there was still like this form of a man that did that. He, he seemed encouraging. and in, in fact, he showed up in the moment of our oppression. We've been under the thumb of the Philistines for years, and this guy showed up. What a miracle that God would show up now. And what's more, he comes with a message proclaiming that God is going to move on our behalf, that he's going to do wonderful things, that our son is going to be a deliverer. It's almost like, I mean, Manoah, hear me out. I know you feel like he showed up to kill us, but it really seems like he has showed up to save us. That seems a lot more to me like a God who is out to save us than a God who is out to kill us. And it turns out she was right. Verse 24 says, the woman gave birth to a boy, named him Samson, and he grew, and the Lord blessed him. I think one of the takeaways for us in this story today is the story of God clothing himself in the likeness of humanity to walk with mankind. It's as old as the story of mankind. The story of this relational God, of, of this holy and divine being whose oneness is magnified by the distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not an invention of Christians from the you know, first century A.D. That story is as old as the story of our world. The person of Jesus Christ provides access to the divine ruler, to the spirit of God who reigns supreme over all of creation. The person of Jesus Christ opens up that door, mediates that relationship in the same way that Abraham conversed with God, in the same way that Moses talked to him face to face. We're invited into this kind of relationship with God, an open door kind of relationship. We're invited into a similarly intimate walk with our Creator. After Jesus ascended... He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, he said, to walk with us, to be our teacher. And so in this sense, unlike Abraham or Manoah or others who who needed to wait for God to show up in human form, we're people who God has said of us that our own bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That inside of us is the meeting place between God and humanity. Our bodies are his dwelling place. And in the same way that the angel of the Lord, that, that God you know, clothed himself in the matter that he created and showed up in the stories of scripture, the spirit has clothed himself in us, has come and dwelt in our hearts. The eternal God has brought himself as near to you as the breath in your lungs. The Creator is invading your world constantly. And His, His presence are meant to be the center of your life. I think the response for us, the question for us is, okay, are we going to live in that intimacy with our God? Or are we going to live as if He's not there? Are we going to live permanently stuck in that place where this is just a man in the field Talking to me. Or this is just another. Normal daily circumstance. Or is the spirit going to. Open our eyes. To see that this is a holy moment. Of interaction between the creator. And his creation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed. He. He celebrated. uh, A Seder dinner with his disciples. If you will the Passover dinner. uh, With his disciples. And he and. I think one of the beautiful things about God rooting the truth of Christ's sacrifice into a meal, and he even set the table for that, you know, de- uh, centuries and centuries before Jesus ever came. The Passover, of course, was a was one of the first religious institutes that God gave to the people of Israel before he delivered them from Egypt. But but it's kind of this thing of God's telling the same story over and over again, and he tells it in different ways, and he uses different props at time, in hopes that some of that Somewhere is going to click in our own minds. And the story that's being told on the cross and it's told through the Lord's table that we come and take part in every week is that, yes, this fallenness has happened. This separation has happened. This covenant has been broken. But God insists that he is going to be the one to pay the price for this brokenness. That his people don't need to because he's already made a sacrifice for it. And this this God, this one who comes near to us, this divine power that shows up in human form and converses with humanity and reveals God's nature to humanity is going to come and offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. With the life of God flowing through his veins, he's going to hang on a cross and die for our sins. And every week when we gather, we just we come to the Lord's table and we proclaim that truth through sharing. In, I mean, the, the ancient Christians shared in a meal together. We we share in some token crackers and some grape juice. Um, so if you know you have to break your Nazarite vows just to be a part of it. But anyhow, we have these this bread, this element that represents Christ's body that we believe was broken for us. And we have this other element, the juice in the cup, that represents. His blood that is poured out for us, establishing a new covenant. And every week we receive those things into ourselves as as like an act of, yes, I might not have gotten to sit on the hill in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and watched you die, but I am receiving these elements into my heart and into my body in the same way that I'm receiving the truth of Christ's death. That really happened. God really paid it all. Jesus really came. And saved us. God showed up, and guess what? It wasn't to judge humanity and to kill humanity. God showed up, and it was to sacrifice in order to save us. And so today, as we turn our hearts back to the Lord and worship, you're invited to come to the Lord's table. And there's uh, crackers and and juice on the different tables around the room. There's extra ones up here at the front. Uh, the front tables on either side. If you're sitting in a chair with no access to a table. And we would just invite you as we sing this last song to receive the body and the blood of Christ um, and receive that truth that God has come to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious love. We thank you for the truth of your word that would proclaim to us again that you, from the beginning of time, planned to clothe yourself in the matter you created. You, from the beginning of time, intended to meet with us face to face. That we could gaze upon your face and know your love and your grace. We thank you that from the beginning of time, you have longed and you have proclaimed that you are moving near to humanity. Not to kill us or treat us as our sins deserve, but to save us and to heal us and to restore us to yourself. Father, as we receive communion today, as we, as we take part in your son's broken body, as we drink from the cup of the new covenant, we just ask that you would seal that work, that reconciling work in each of our hearts. That place, that central place that you deserve in our world, in our minds, in our consciousness, you would take that place today. Our lives would be all about you. Refresh us in your spirit and draw us close, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we sing this last song, get your hands on some communion and and just receive it uh, with thanksgiving for what God's done.